Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, many, many ways of getting our show. You can download directly from our website at techcentral.ie. Use a smartphone podcast app, Apple Podcasts, of course, or you can turn us on every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Now, a little later on the show, we're going to be talking to Professor Barry O'Sullivan from the Insight Centre for Data Analytics about what the workplace is going to be like in 10 or 20 years' time. <laughs> Man, he has some crazy ideas or are they you'll hear in the interview but first joining me is Niall Kitson our editor-in-chief and, and Niall we're quite excited this week about the latest hardware announcement from Microsoft uh excited well yeah I guess so anytime there's a, a surface uh, announcement surface tablet that is not not surface laptop I certainly seem uh, to prick up my ears because I still have a first generation surface pro um I use it an awful lot especially when I'm out and about I, I use this instead of a regular laptop um I just find the form factor is nice um it's not it's not so great if I want to put in a day's homeworking or something like that um you do need an external monitor keyboard yada yada in order to get the the best out of it but um for something with a little bit of grunt behind it it'll run all the apps that i want um of course it's got a, a normal desktop on it so i've i've always been a fan of the surface pro line um i think with the surface pro 3 microsoft really stepped it up a bit in terms of design um by going sort of fanless and get, getting um, some contemporary uh, in, Intel processors in there. Uh, Surface Pro 4, kind of a, an incremental improvement. And uh, now they're, they're going kind of the MacBook route with, these, with the latest Surface Pro, which isn't the Surface Pro 5. You're not allowed to call it that. It's just Surface Pro, uh, which, of course, comes from you know the, the current way Apple is treating the iPad. It's just iPad. And, and of course, the, the MacBook, which is just MacBook. Mm. Um, so, uh, okay, uh, I've had a look at the specs. Have you had a look at what makes have, this thing unique? I haven't had a look at the specs, but if you have them there, here's the question I would ask you. Because you mentioned the MacBook Pro, and we're talking about, you know, some kind of a portable computing with a bit of oomph to it, as you say. Okay, so mm. how does the Microsoft Surface Pro latest version uh, stack up technically against the MacBook Pro? Against the MacBook Pro? Well, okay, the, the interesting thing about... Um, Going with um, sort of the Pro over the the MacBook Pro was uh, was that it's it's kind of still sort of a fragmented market. I mean, you could look at the Mac Pro, or you could look at say the iPad Pro, and sort of make a decision as as to which is actually the um, the uh, the competitor. But let's go let's go through the the basics of the. Um, MacBook, right? Yeah. As as we know it now, so uh, the monitor comes with uh, two thousand two thousand three hundred four times fourteen forty resolution at two twenty six pixels per inch. Now compare that with the new Surface Pro, uh, which is going for twenty seven thirty six times eighteen twenty four at two sixty seven. So that's a better monitor um, straight away. Better better display. Um, if we go have a look at uh, the amount of memory on it, um, the MacBook has eight gigs as standard, and of course you know the, what Apple charges when they when they mm. decide to go up. Um, if you are looking for something with eight gigs on the latest Surface Pro, um, yep, they've they've got that. The Surface Pro actually goes up to sixteen gigs. Um, the MacBook two fifty six gigs um, flash store uh, SSD. Um, the new Pro goes up to one terabyte. Um, 
and uh, looking at the dimensions. Uh, what's interesting about the Surface Pro is that it's the same size across all the models. It doesn't, doesn't matter what's under the hood. It's all the same dimensions, right? So um, in terms of millimeters, the Surface Pro is 292.1 times 201.42 times 8.5 versus, uh, let's see, um, height, width, uh, so 285 centimeters wide. <laughs> so the, um, the MacBook is a li- the Surface Pro is a little bit bigger times 160.5. That's versus 201.2 and, uh, versus, uh, 20, uh, uh, you, 280. You, you, you're blinding me with your millimeter science now. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Okay. Basically, <laughs> but the Surface the Pro same is size. The Surface Pro is slightly bigger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a little. It's a little bit bigger. All right. Uh, okay. Not. Not. You know. World beating. But yeah. It is bigger. Uh, and of course the. Um, uh, you've you've got sort of the little niggly things that annoy people about the MacBook, which is um, USB C. Um, over sort of the, you know, display port or regular USD mm. or uh, a, a micro uh, SD reader. So l- let me just share some of the extra bits and bobs about this because the uh, Surface Pro, um, the two things that they're really touting about it is the battery life, uh, which they're claiming is up to uh, 13 and a half hours. That's super impressive. I mean, if you've got a laptop with 12 hour battery life, you, you would be pretty happy. The MacBook, they're claiming up to to 10 hours on the Wi-Fi, 11 hours if you're watching something uh, through iTunes. So 13 and a half hours is, is still much better. Uh, seventh generation Intel processors and their wonderful hinge that they love talking about can go to a 10 degree angle. So it's it's slightly raised and not quite flat, slightly raised. That's pretty good. Mm. Um, so when you're looking versus the Surface Pro 4, um, this is where it kind of gets very interesting for me because there's a lot of good reductions on the Pro 4 uh, at the moment. So if you want to step back a generation in terms of your processors um, and you want to get the pen, the little touch pen included, which the Surface Pro doesn't, um, you are looking at some fairly significant savings right now because if you go to sort of your, your high street um, store, uh, all the physical dimensions are the same. Um, the screen is the same size and you can start at €779. That's a reduced price. That's what you can pay now. If you want to go to the same store on the 15th of June, which is when this thing is released globally, um, you will start at €959. If you want to go for the top end model, right, um, which is uh, the the, uh, current Surface Pro or the new Surface Pro. It's going to be one terabyte, a Core i7 and 16 gigs, right? Uh, The equivalent model back in uh, 2015 came out for €3,029. The top end model in the the Surface Pro is €3,149. Ow, 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 spelt N-O. Yeah, and in both cases, that is a lot of money to be forking out for for effectively a tablet PC. I mean, you you would be looking at you know a twenty one inch screen with you know thirty two gigs of RAM and at least a terabyte hard drive uh, if you were to buy a, a desktop or an all in one. Um, even if you were to go for say a pretty high end HP laptop, you're still looking around two thousand euro. 
It all depends, I suppose, on uh, on what you want it for and what you're going to use. Now, you you would uh, you are a journalist and you are out uh, at a lot of press conferences quite a lot. So, and you do need a little bit of power because you are using audio. You might use video occasionally. You have to be online or uh, uh, whichever d- d- typing email. All kinds of things going on at the same time. Do you find that the Surface Pro that you have at the moment is enough to handle all of that? Actually, yeah. In terms of multitasking, I find it pretty robust, uh, I have to okay. say. Now, the uh, other question I was going to ask was, uh, lots of people were all used to laptops. For doing that kind of work, as exactly as I've described, we're used to laptops. Being on the train mm-hmm. or on the couch or whatever it is, and you, it's, it's, the, it's all built in in the one keyboard screen. There we go. You're using your Surface Pro in a, in a mobile, in a very, very mobile situation with an attachable keyboard, which I would mm-hmm. think is a bit flimsy. How do you find the Surface Pro compared to a regular laptop? Uh, I agree with you on the flimsy front. I mean, if you were to say, Niall, we're going shopping, uh, you have a choice of a laptop or a Surface. I probably would still go with the laptop, even though I, I, I get tremendous use out of my Surface. What I would say is that um, one thing that does my nut in about the Surface is the is the keyboard, because for some reason, the mouse trackpad just rubs me up the wrong way. Uh, if you want to get the most out of a Surface Book, yep, by all means, get the, um, get the little magnetic uh, keyboard. That's fine. It's actually quite a, a pleasant keyboard to use but uh, you probably will en- end up using an external mouse as well i certainly do but that said i use a lot of um multimedia apps where it, 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 having a, a separate mouse does give you that extra level of precision but uh, i guess if you work with spreadsheets or word documents most of the time it's not an issue but but for me i definitely need to have a separate mouse which means inevitably getting a, a usb hub as well because it, it's only got the, the one usb port version that i have Final question for you, when you're at home and you have a desk or you when you're in the office and you have a desk and you are able to plug into a monitor and a keyboard and have a mouse and all that kind of stuff, how does your Surface Pro uh, play in that environment when you hook it up to all the peripherals? Yeah, works works just fine. And I like to use a dual monitor setup as well. So um, uh, generally it performs very well. Uh, but again, this is for me where the Surface tends to fall down because I use a 15-inch laptop with a, a 21 inch uh, ex- separate monitor um, you don't you just can't get that kind of real estate with a with a Surface Pro so again that sort of knocks me back into laptop territory but they all have their uses you know um, true now if you didn't have a choice okay because you're right laptops are better in some circumstances Surface Pro better in other circumstances if you had to choose which one uh yeah, well, if you if you were to say premium laptop versus top end Surface Pro, I'd still go a premium laptop. I mean, I understand where they sit in the market, but you know, I do as I, well. Obviously, the most ideal scenario for both you and I is to have both. Absolutely, let's make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for bringing us up to speed on the brand new Surface Pro from Microsoft. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's TechCentral.ie. Now, let's get into our interview this week, which is all about tech in work and your job and how safe you think it might be. I mean, do you think you're going to be doing the same work in five or 10 or 20 years time? Or the key question, if your job is still around in five, 10 or 20 years time, will it be done by human beings? Professor Barry O'Sullivan from the Insight Centre for Data Analytics has some opinions that might surprise you and Niall Kitson caught up with them to discuss how automation is changing the world of work. 
I'm out at the Futurescope event today at the Convention Centre in Dublin and I've managed to collar the Director of the Insight Centre for Data Analytics, Professor Barry O'Sullivan. Uh, and Barry, today you've been talking about automation, um, which is kind of a byproduct of, of AI and different types of AI, but we've talked about AI a little bit before in the show and there's a lot of buzzwords, different fields encompassed in that, in that term. Um, so let's just break it down a little bit. What, do, what does AI mean at the moment? Yeah, I, okay, so I suppose there's a couple of different things going on. So AI is a, as a field of study, as a sort of an academic field of study, um, is all about automating different, I suppose, aspects of intelligence. And so machine learning is one of those. So how do you, how do you generalize from examples of things? So it could be, you know, how do you learn to identify... Um, uh, to diagnose something from a from an image in radiology, for example, but it's also about well, for example, how do you plan? So how do you, if you want to achieve a goal um, and you're starting from, from a particular position, then what sequence of tasks should you carry out in order to achieve your goal? And so that's essentially the field of planning. Um, you might need to uh, reason about the behaviours of others. So imagine you're. Uh, playing a game, then you have an objective, your opponent has an objective, and so um, the sort of classic game is the prisoner's dilemma, you know, two, two, two guys are in two separate rooms being interviewed by the police, so, and different penalties depending on what they say. Uh, so that's the field of game theory, essentially. So how do you, how do you understand the behavior of people? How do you, um, I suppose, incentivize people to behave in, the, in a particular way? Um, then there's things like decision-making, so uh, optimization, so how do you solve um, complex systems of constraints, like, uh, so, you know, think of timetabling or scheduling a sports tournament. Um, so, you know, there are some decisions you have to make that have to satisfy certain constraints. Obviously, you can't have two, the same team playing in two different places at the same time. So, um, and there are things like vision, obviously. So how do you understand images? How do you understand what you see? There's robotics. So how do you actually manipulate and do things? And so the field of AI captures those and many, many other things, natural language processing. So how do you understand language? Um, so as a field of study, it encompasses all of that sort of activity plus more, right? Um, when you hear people talking about artificial intelligence today in the business world, they're often referring to machine learning and they're often referring to you know, very specific uh, techniques in machine learning. So, for example, deep learning, which is a, which is a particular technique. Um, and that's because you know, many of the recent uh, sort of high-profile you know, wins and achievements have been achieved through deep learning, um, so for example, self-driving cars is an example. Um, the AlphaGo game-playing system was a deep learning system, but AI as a discipline is much broader than that. Right. Uh, and bringing up the uh, idea of self-driving cars, yeah. I think it's certainly one of the hot-button topics that uh, yeah. is happening in emerging technology at the moment. And uh, you know, it's it's been slow progress, or it feels like it's been quite slow progress in mm. getting self-driving cars to the mainstream, but. From your perspective, it's as much a mental block as a technological one. Yeah, so I often say that um, that the greatest obstacle to the deployment of self-driving cars today is the human aspect, is the, uh, is the fact that we, as human beings, are very cautious about self-driving cars. Uh, we like to be in control. You know, we, drivers don't often make very good passengers, right? So the, um, but I, I think the technologically, um, autonomous, autonomous driving is current, right? So there are self-driving car technologies that are mature. Um, whether they're mature enough for people to feel comfortable with them is a separate issue. I think they should be. Um, 
So I think we're very, very close to the possibility of um, of sitting ourselves into cars that are driving autonomously. The Tesla is a is a very good example. Um, the Google Car, very, very good example. Um, people at Udacity building self-driving car and lots of others, right? So some of the big car manufacturers are also working in it. Um, but I suppose to put it into context, you know, the um, like I made a point in my talk that if you take if you look at uh, if you consider that the number of people that die annually as a consequence of all war all drugs all violence is about 1.6 million people and the number of people who drive who die on uh, due to road traffic accidents as a consequence of human beings driving cars which is about 1.2 million it's uh, you know it's astonishing that these are similar numbers and even if we were to deploy self-driving cars as they are developed today we probably would say we probably would not they would not kill 1.2 million people right so, the, so um, but we hold technology often to a, to a much higher um, threshold which is probably right and proper right so I'm not saying that um, so you know it is it, it is a question of adoption and if you look at some countries, Ireland, for example, um, we even have problems introducing technologies like uh, like Uber, you know. So, um, um, and this is for you know regular regulatory purposes as much as it is a concern for you know the impact that that would have on the taxi industry, right? So those, so just because something is, and I made this point as well in the talk, just because something is technically possible doesn't mean that we should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I suppose self-driving cars is technically possible and we could do it <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting point where where you that you raise where we have the technology should we actually uh, use it which is a fundamental question of the yeah. things down down through the ages um, when we look at how automation might be applied to the jobs market yeah. how big I, I don't necessarily want to say a problem but how is it that the jobs market going to be changed and yeah. which jobs are going to be most affected yeah so so there there are a large number of independent reports that have that have been published you know over the last few years and i suppose the rate of i suppose automation replacement of work um, they vary from as low as 10% for example in the irish government's uh, so um, they create this sort of risk um, Register for the future, they're estimating about nine, ten percent of jobs lost due to automation. Whereas there are reports from some of the big sort of from the big consultant companies who are saying it's as high as fifty percent, um, and there's lots of numbers in between. Um, so you know, as I said, all of these all all of these numbers are probably wrong, but there is a there is a significant number, and I suppose the kind of jobs that are going to that are going to be automated are things that require that are routine but are sophisticated. Um, so these are, you know, imagine you're a person who deals with, um, you run an audit on an account. So the knowledge that you apply is sophisticated. You're probably someone who is qualified to some very, very high standard. But how you use that knowledge is rather routine. You know, you apply it in a similar way. The circumstances change. But the, um, so that's a perfect example of something that can be automated using artificial intelligence. Equally, um, uh, you know, if you're a big legal firm, you spend a lot of your time searching case history, trying to get summaries of very, very complex documents. So going from large corpuses of uh, documentation to really accurate and concise summaries, that's, a, that's an AI task. So the person or people who have to spend a couple of weeks doing that, that's a, that's a job that can be automated. Um, and lots of others. So, you know, certain types of driving, you know, truck driving is one that's obvious. And lots of manufacturing jobs. You know, I often say that, the, that there isn't, 
that there, that man is no longer in manufacturing. And I, what I mean, you know, what I mean is, um, you know, you go into a, a, a sophisticated manufacturing plant, you probably find a very small number of human beings and a huge line of robots that are doing very specific things. So again, those old mechanical tasks are things that can be automated. But there are lots of things that can't be automated, and um, the and if you think of you know the the people who sort of dig the road to fix a pipe. That's extremely difficult to automate because um, it's highly manual. It's highly, you know, there's very sophisticated dexterity required to do that. So the, the co- it's not that it's technologically impossible, but it's technologically not cost effective. You know, so the, to build a robot that can that can manipulate in the same way as a human being can do in those that that, that is very very expensive. So kind of ironic in a sense, um, AI has will probably have greater impact on work that we would typically sort of regard as sort of middle class work you know so the, the middle class professional worker um, sort of white collar guy and uh, well you know a lot of blue collar stuff has been replaced but there's a it's going to have a greater sort of marital impact it's going to have is going to be significant amongst that sort of professional group that's a very interesting point because you, you imagine that it would be things like the trades would be would be most effective yeah. oh yeah I think you know if you think of a very skilled Carpenter, you know, it says, you know, um, while there's, there's a lot of stuff that is um, that is automatable, you, know, you you could build a robot that makes the frames of doors, you know. But um, if you think of, you know, fine cabinet making or something, you know, real craftsmanship, um, that's very very, you know, that's as much an artistic and creative aspect uh, uh, issue as it is um, as it is a technical one. So, you know, there, there are lots of, uh, you know, so. There is a field, for example, of creative, um, of computational creativity, which is all about well, how do AI, how can AI systems be creative? But typically, these things are very sort of mathematically defined, and there's a you know this is what the definition of creativity is. But um, but if you think of you know create, creativity in music and creativity in art and creativity in humor, that was the thing I finished up on. That you know uh, we don't know yet how to automate, how to build an, an AI system that can just be bloody funny, you know. <laughs> so that, that's so uh, th- there's a lot of things like that that are very difficult, if not impossible, to automate. We just don't know how to do it. You know, it, it, what what is it that makes something funny? You know, so uh, we don't quite understand ourselves. I, I guess sort of the the construction and the appreciation of context. Yes, exactly the context and the, uh, the irony, the sense of you know a sense of wit, that sort of turn of phrase. Uh, these things are quite you know these things are. Um, Difficult. You can imagine how you could build a system that can kind of suggest, or oh, you might like this joke, because you know you like all these other ones, and your your friend, your best friend Tommy likes all these jokes, and he likes that one. So you'd probably find that. So building a kind of a recommender system for jokes that's easy, yeah. uh, but building something that can that can invent a new joke uh, is something that's very very difficult. And a colleague of mine in UCC, uh, Professor Des McHale, he's a he's probably a, you know a very well known mathematician, but also a world, world authority in humor. You know, this is very much his sort of challenge to the AI community, which is, you know, can we build um, can we build computer programs that are funny? And you know, I hope not to. It'd be nice to disappoint Des, and you know, it'd be nice to rise to that challenge. Sort of, but I actually just don't know how to do it, and I think um, I don't think anybody does. I think one of the um 
points that you raise in your talk uh, is the role of bias that we we like to think there is such a thing as an objective reality yeah. um, but but that's just not the case and, and robots uh, or, or AI is very much um, susceptible to that as well yeah I think this is a re- yeah so like uh, I, I like talking about the topic of bias because uh, like uh, as I said earlier I um, I tend to call AI systems especially ones that are based on data uh, sort of bias in bias out because the input is often biased but it's often inherently biased and so um so classic examples of bias are things like uh, filter bubbles. You know, you, in personalization, you tend to be presented with things that you like because you like them. Um, so you don't tend to be shown things that challenge you that you might not like because that's not what recommended system wants to do. Um, and, you know, you see this all the time in, you know, social media things that tend to suggest content to you that you will engage with because, of course, those platforms want you to engage in the platform. Um, and so that creates these filter bubbles, which is a form of bias. Also, just, you know, data. You know, if you think about... Um, if you carried out a, a, a survey on Twitter, you know that's a you know that's not a very representative sample of the world, right? So, um, and you often see systems that are trying to do sentiment analysis and prediction of what's going on in in elections, and they use Twitter data, but invariably they get it wrong, right? Because um, uh, it's a very sort of a select, it's a very specific kind of population. Um, and so I spoke a little bit about that with Google search, you know, so the kind of things you get back. And that's a, that's a combination of data bias um, and, um, and I suppose, uh, context. But the, uh, the sort of cute babies example is, a, is quite a compelling example because it's very stark, right? You just see, you know, you search for cute babies in Google, you see a bunch of, you know, uh, light pink babies, right? So uh, all cute, obviously, but um, and interaction bias I spoke about. So, so understanding, uh, like I think a lot of people who are building AI systems and doing sort of data science and data analytics, um, unless they're very, very careful, they can miss the bias in their data. And I think um, uh, that's a very challenging thing to do technically. And I think it's, but it's obviously phenomenally important. And I also pointed this recent work um, from people in Princeton and uh, Bath on just inherent bias in language that there are that there are gender biases and role biases in terms of just how certain phrases appear together in documents um, and in how we express them just how we how we talk which are which are biased and, and that's something that's really difficult you know because you know, you'd almost have to invent a new language in order to overcome those things it's very much the problem of you know you didn't get the joke in the text message yes exactly 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 so that you know that's a it, it's really really challenging and i think uh, you know ai does have to address this sort of thing because um uh you know the variety in the world um uh, you know has to be captured somehow um you know, less than half the population of the world even has access to a mobile phone. The majority of the world does not have access to the internet. Uh, so, you know, there's massive bias, you know. So uh, there are people living in conditions that, uh, you know, here in the West we can't even imagine. And if we're building solutions based on the kind of data that we see and that we experience, you know, that's, that's, um, that's the wrong way to go. And, know? and you know, whose who's internet are you actually accessing as yeah, well? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, so, yeah, so, you know, content is, of course, um, is, of course... Uh, um, curated and you know what kind of content you get to see where it does have a bias there are you know newspapers and magazines will have a certain political alignment for example 
uh, individuals will have a particular alignment. So it's very difficult to overcome that kind of bias because bias is, is all around us. You know, it's just part of who and what we are, you know. So even with, though we look to have, you know, the, the ones and zeros, the rights and wrongs in robotics, it's still very much junk in, junk out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And like, um, you know, these systems are only as, you know, we might think that, and, you know, your previous question, you know, we might think that, that an AI system, because it's computerized, you know, so it's a digitized thing, that it's, um, you know, cold and compassionate, just like Dr. Spock was, but... Um, but the, but the difference between Dr. Spock and an AI system is that Dr. Spock, um, I think the people who wrote him, he, he didn't really have a sort of a, a built-in bias. You know, he just saw the logical facts of the matter. But um, And this, like I suppose this bias thing is a consequence of the recent, I suppose, um, uh, advances in AI that have, been, that have been largely due to sort of data analytics and the availability of large amounts of data. So... Um, systems that are based on logic so formal logic that one has written down um, you know these are the these are the premises these are the um, these are these are the um, propositions um, then you know there's a there's a conclusion that one can logically draw the conclusion might be nonsense uh, based on you know the facts that we started with but it's a logical it's a logical outcome you don't have that in data because data is inher- is inherently biased and so this is this is specifically a challenge of um, sort of data driven AI and I think um, while there have been massive advances in data driven AI it, ha- it does come with a risk and this risk is associated with bias and that was Niall Kitson chatting to Professor Barry O'Sullivan from the Insight Centre for Data Analytics uh, Niall still with us in the studio Niall just before we go this week what's our one more thing for this week the one thing that we just couldn't squeeze into the show that's online on the website yeah I got to apologise for our listeners because the news cycle has just worked against us on this one but uh, for all the coverage on WannaCry and what oh. the latest of it is very interesting about where it's coming from actually I have to, I have to say you get all the details of that story uh, on our website and of course all the latest on our Irish tech news with hourly updates daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show online and every Friday broadcast on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra on to next time from myself Dusty Rhodes and from Nile Kitson at Tech Central HQ thanks for listening have a great weekend Get Tech Radio subscribe for free with iTunes or download Download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.